Well, as Dave said, we are beginning a new series today in the book of Ruth. And I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. And you might think, gosh, we only just passed bonfire night. It's a bit early to be thinking about Christmas or even mentioning Christmas. Uh, but, But actually, we're beginning our Christmas preparations as a church early this year. They start right now. Because... The book of Ruth, although it might seem a less than obvious place to begin, actually leads us to Advent and points towards the arrival of Jesus Christ in an amazing way. And actually it does it in in lots of ways, over and over throughout this short book. It, It tells the story of a lady and her family about a thousand years before the birth of Christ Jesus, and yet unmistakably this short story points forward to his coming with incredible clarity and is very helpful and practical for us today because I'm just going to give you some background before we get into it. The book of Ruth was, was written as kind of additional reading or supplementary reading to the book of Judges, which some of you will have heard of. Now, the book of Judges gives account of a period in the nation of Israel's history. And it shows how over a period of time, God's people turned their back on him and rejected him. And he lovingly brought them back to himself again and then yet again they would turn their backs on him and turn to foreign gods and to false idols and pursue all kinds of other things to try and fulfill themselves and again in love he would bring them back to himself and this cycle goes over and over. Judges gives us the account, although there are individuals in it, of a nation. But Ruth gives us, in that context, at that point in history, the account of God's dealings with a family. It shows God's care and concern, not just for a nation, not just for a vast number of people, but for individuals, for people like you. It's a compelling short story and and I'm looking forward to getting into it together over the next few weeks because as we read it, I think you're going to discover along with me as we read together that actually Ruth's story is in many ways our story. It's actually in many ways the story of every human, of every person born into a broken fallen world in need of rescue in need of hope in need of a saviour in Ruth we find this journey from emptiness to fullness a journey from despair to hope a journey from barrenness to fruitfulness it's a journey that each one of us can relate to in our lives. And Ruth serves as a reminder as it points forward to the coming of Jesus that however dark things might feel, 
however bleak things might appear right now, the light is coming. It's what Ruth discovered, and it's what we discover in the person and work of Jesus. And so we're going to read it together. We're going to take the whole of chapter 1 today. And the way we're going to approach this, as we often do, is we'll read a chunk, we'll pause, unpack it, and see how this 3,000-year-old story applies to us today. And then we'll read on a bit more and do the same again. So let's read from Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is a tragic opening to the story of Ruth, isn't it? I mean, humanly speaking, this is about as bleak as it gets. Culturally, for this woman, Naomi, her husband was the one who would care for her and provide for her. And when he passed, her sons were the ones who would care for her and provide for her. So she was left without a provider, without someone to care for her. Culturally, she was in a desperate situation. She was living in a foreign land, and her husband and her sons were gone. This is, this is tragic. It's a dark situation, but there are some interesting details that we must not miss. Names are really important. In the Bible, they often have important, significant meaning that help us understand what's going on. And this story is no different. We'll see later in the passage that Naomi understood the importance of names too. But here's what we need to know about their names. Naomi means my delight or pleasant. Her name indicates and suggests that her life is good and fruitful. And to begin with, it was. She had a godly husband and two sons. They were in Bethlehem. Elimelech means my God is king. When his parents named him, they had in full view that his life was supposed to be devoted to God, that God was in charge. And as a family, they were from Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem literally means, it's a word made up of two parts, it literally means house of bread. It's two words, house and bread. It's, it's the house of bread. Bethlehem is the bread basket of that region. It was a place that got its name because it was fruitful, because its harvests were abundant, because it was a place of incredible provision. This is a good start. We've got someone who's called pleasant or delightful with a husband whose name is my God is king. And they live in a place of incredible, abundant provision from God in Bethlehem. So what went wrong? Well, God had warned his people that if they were unfaithful, if they turned their back on him, that the consequences would be dire. And, and we see this played out through the Old Testament time and time again. But this cycle of turning away from God and then returning to him and then turning away from him again. And we see it particularly played out in the book of Judges where it says, and each generation was worse than the next. So this degenerative cycle of turning away from God and his ways of thinking that they knew better than him and rejecting him and his provision and saying, no, no, we're going to go it our way. We're going to do it the way we think is best rather than the way you have instructed us to. And we read, didn't we, right at the start, there was famine in the land of Bethlehem. That, that should jar. In, in, in the house of bread, there is a famine because God's people had turned their backs on him. He'd warned them about it. The warning came with a promise that if they returned to him, the land would be fruitful again. But we join the story at this point where there is no grain harvest in the house of bread because God's people had rebelled against and rejected the Lord of the harvest. So we don't need you, we don't want you. We're going to find our fulfillment elsewhere. And now Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, turns his back on God so fully so holy that he actually leaves the promised land altogether. He leaves the land that God has provided for his people and he takes his family to live away from the people of God, away from God's provision. He chooses pragmatism over faith. Instead of returning to God and looking to him to provide, he goes, hey, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> I'm going to go provide for my family over here instead. Because that looks like they've got food in Moab. He decides to take matters into his own hands instead of looking to and trusting God to provide. He goes looking for provision elsewhere. And it doesn't get much better as a picture because their son's names, remember names <laughs> are important, their son's names, Marlon and Chilion, mean sickly and wasting away. In one generation, we've gone from my God is king and pleasant or my delight to sickly and wasting away. Living away from God does not ultimately lead to health and life. It leads to sickness and wasting away. 
That's the picture we're supposed to see here at the outset of this story. And whilst they as a family are running away from God and trying to find provision apart from him, these sons marry Moabite women. The picture doesn't get any better because actually that was forbidden for God's people. They were supposed to be a a distinct people set apart for relationship with God. They weren't supposed to marry people who worshipped foreign gods because that would lead to compromise and invariably it did. And yet, sickly and wasting away, choose to ignore God's best for them and say, we know better than you, God. We're going to choose wives from this place because we like the look of them. And they do. They choose two wives. One, Ruth, who turns out to be a good egg, who's called Friend. And another, Orpah, who just means gorgeous. Like, Sickly was choosing his wife based on one criteria, right? (laughs) The story's clear. And in about 10 years of these marriages, this settling and looking for provision apart from God, there's no fruit in any way in this story. In 10 years of marriage, sickly and wasting away, fail to produce heirs. That's significant. All was not well. Living away from God, trying to meet their own need instead of looking to him for provision. And now Elimelech and his sons are dead, leaving Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. This is a really tragic tale. (laughs) Whatever loss you could experience, Naomi has experienced it. And it's the product of them turning away from God. That's that's the picture we're supposed to see. And yet, as happens time and time and time again with the people of God, there is hope coming. It looks very dark right now, but there is light coming. (laughs) A fruitfulness into this barren situation that is better than anything they could possibly anticipate. We read on from verse 6. Naomi now, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She's in a foreign land and she hears. (laughs) God's provided for his people in Bethlehem. Again, there's food. This is a turning moment in the story. Naomi hears from the fields of Moab that God has visited his people in providing food for them in Bethlehem and she comes to her senses, like, what am I doing here? in this place of fruitlessness and emptiness, and she returns to the promised land to be with the people of God. There's a harvest in the house of bread once more. The people have repented. They've turned from their rebellion, at least in parts, and have come back to worship God, and in his kindness he has provided for them. He has brought an end to the famine This turning point in the story, Naomi will look again to God for provision. 
where she and her family had turned their backs on him and sought to provide for themselves, she turns again. Says, God, I'm coming back to you for my provision. And there is a wonderful promise here too of the way that God would provide ultimately, finally, fully for his people, which we're going to pick up more later. Because God would again visit his people in Bethlehem to provide bread that would not only end famine, but would bring eternal life. And we're going to talk about that more later. We read on from verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now Naomi knows there are implications for her two Moabite daughters-in-law of going with her to Jerusalem. They don't worship the God of Israel. Their people don't worship the God of Israel. They have no future there in many senses. And so Naomi tries to put them off. We read from verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's like, like, thank you for being good wives for my sons. But, but go now. Go back home. Why? She carries on from verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's like, go, go find other husbands <laughs> from your people. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? She's saying, look, I I can't give you anything. You come with me, I, I have nothing to offer you. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? (laughs) Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi essentially spells out to them that she has nothing to offer them. And she blames God for that fact rather than her family's disobedience, which is interesting. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And she recognizes the sovereignty of God, but she takes no ownership for what's happened. And at first, her two daughters-in-law both have this incredible response. They say, no, we're not going home. We're coming with you. We're bound to you. But Orpah, in the end, considers the cost too much and decides to stay in Moab. Actually, the prospect of leaving everything behind in order to accompany Naomi to Jerusalem, to Judah, to Bethlehem, is too much. 
And so she decides, no, actually, I'm going to stay. <laughs> I'm going to stay here with my family, and I'm going to find a Moabite husband, and I'm going to stay in this place. But Ruth clings to Naomi. She determines to stay with her. And so Naomi has, a, has another crack at putting her off. And she says to her from verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and this is really significant, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, and this is interesting, when she says Lord here, she uses the word Yahweh, the name that the Israelites would use for God, for their Lord. It was an acknowledgement for her in this moment that her Lord was their Lord. She turned her backs on the idols, on the gods of the Moabites, and she turned to worship the one true God. May the Lord do so to me, and, also, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Ruth here has a conversion experience, in a sense. She, she isn't just being faithful to her mother-in-law. She's not just being like a good, faithful daughter-in-law and friend. She is those things. But there's more than that happening here. She's not just being faithful to Naomi. She has turned to God. She has placed her hope in God. She declares, your God will be my God. We're supposed to see this gospel picture here with Orpah and Ruth. What we say is not nearly as important as what we do when it comes to our response to Jesus. See, They both said yes. They both said we're coming with you. But when it came to counting the cost, Orpah turned away. But Ruth said, I'm coming. I'm following God. I'm trusting him. They had a clear choice to make this moment, didn't they? It was Yahweh, the God of Israel, plus nothing. No promise, no prospects, no husbands. Yahweh, plus nothing in Bethlehem. Or everything that the world considers valuable. Family, economic stability, familiarity, all of these things, but without Yahweh in Moab. And Orpah says, I'm choosing comfort in Moab. Ruth says, Yahweh is what I really need. Yahweh plus nothing. I'm in. Even though that means no husband and no family. 
She counts the cost. She leaves behind family, parents, nation, and roots in order to follow Yahweh. Her primary identity from this point on becomes as a worshipper of God rather than as a citizen of Moab. At a moment in time when the men of Israel were turning their backs on God and walking from the promised land and running to pagan idols, this remarkable lady turned her back on pagan idols and walked into the promised land and ran to the Lord. (laughs) She understood that what she really needed was a relationship with the living God. We read on from verse 19. So the two of them, now Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, or do not call me. My mind's gone blank. Pleasant, sorry. <laughs> call me Mara, which means bitter. She understood the significance of names. Something has happened to her in this process. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi or Pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? She's not in a good place. Just call me bitter because of the loss I've experienced. Don't call me Pleasant anymore. Maybe some of you feel a bit like that today. Loss you've experienced, disappointment, heartache. You think, call me bitter. Naomi is angry at God for the loss she has experienced. She blames him for the loss she has experienced. He's dealt badly with me. She has this kind of, what's God ever done for me kind of attitude. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me delightful. God's dealt me a bum hand. Maybe some of you feel like that. See, she's returned home. She's returned to the people of God. Because she wants the blessing of God. She wants the harvest. That's why she's there, right? She's in the fields of Moab and she hears God has provided for his people. And so she returns for God's provision. She wants the blessing of God, but not God himself at this point in the story. She's not actually returned for Yahweh. She's crossed with him. And actually, she really, really has missed the point. At this juncture in the story, I feel for her because she'd experienced incredible loss. But she's really missed the point because she declares, I went away full. In what way did she think she went away full? Well, she had a husband and sons. And her life was 
looked good. She had those things that meant she was comfortable. She was secure financially. She was provided for. Life was stable. Life was comfortable. Life was, I was full. And now she says, she's empty. Because she no longer has those things. See, what's interesting is that Naomi wasn't actually content with Yahweh plus nothing in the way that we've just discovered Ruth was. Naomi thought she was full because of all of the nice things in her life. And now they're gone. I'm empty. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. She was not looking to God to satisfy her. She was trying to fill up on other things. That's why her and her husband chose to leave the promised land in the first place. Because they're trying to find what they thought they needed apart from the provision of God. So she blames God and complains against him instead of owning her family's rebellion. But here's the amazing thing. God doesn't write her off. And maybe today you, you can identify a bit with Naomi. You think, but you don't know what I've experienced. You don't know what I've lost. Okay. God was going to make the most incredible provision for her. And although she was angry against him, and although she was bitter, he doesn't write her off. He doesn't reject her. If I can express it like this, he doesn't treat her as her sins deserve. And because of Jesus, neither will he to you if you turn to him. In his kindness, God begins to unfold from this point on in the story, a series of events that will draw her back to him. And wonderfully, chapter one concludes with a note of promise. What has felt in many ways like a downer, loss, famine, loss, emptiness, I'm bitter. The last thing we read is this from verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite with her, sorry, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We get this all of a sudden uptick at the end, this hopeful note. When did they come? They came at the beginning of the barley harvest. (laughs) The barley harvest is beginning. The God who keeps on giving is giving again. Her empty life that she's just bemoaned is about to be filled, not in the way she expects. There is a literal, physical harvest that they have arrived home to, but it has a powerful, symbolic meaning for her and for you. Because just as God visited his people then in the house of bread and made provision, He did it again even more incredibly about 2,000 years ago, a 1,000 years after Ruth. 
God visited his people in Bethlehem himself in human flesh. God, the creator of all things, came, born of a virgin, clothed in human flesh, clothed in humility. He came, where to? Into that bread basket, into Bethlehem, into the famine of our lives. The bread of life was born. The bread of life. That's what Jesus said about himself. He knew this story. <laughs> he, he knew the promise that Father, Son, and Spirit had conspired in order to end the famine, the barrenness in our lives, trying to fill up on all kinds of other things apart from him. We read in John chapter 6 these words that Jesus said about himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. On a bit later from verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness which was manna that God had provided for them, yeah? Bread from heaven. Much like the barley harvest that has just begun in Bethlehem. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, whoever has faith in me, whoever hopes in me will never go hungry, will never be thirsty. Not literal physical hunger, but deep emotional spiritual longing for satisfaction that we try and satisfy in all kinds of places. Even the bread from heaven that God provided in the wilderness was not eternally satisfying. Even the manna that God provided wasn't eternally satisfying. They got hungry again. And actually more, Jesus said in verse 49, Yet they died. <laughs> but here is bread that anyone may eat and not die. Jesus is saying that he is true provision from heaven. That whoever hopes in him will not die. He promises eternal life to those who believe in him. Bread is a staple. It's essential for life. And Jesus uses that picture just as we have shot through the Old Testament to say that he is essential for true life, for spiritual life. You eat bread or food to survive because your life depends on it. In the same way, Jesus is saying, trust in me because your life, your eternal life depends on it. 
Look to me for satisfaction and fulfillment, not those things. Because they will waste away and fade away. They, they might feel good in a moment, but they are not eternally satisfying. Trust in me. Your eternal life depends on it. Believe. He says, whoever believes in him, believe what? Believe that Jesus' death, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood paid the penalty for your sin. The Bible is clear that each one of us has fallen short of God's perfect plan for humanity. Each one of us, like Elimelech and his family, has turned our back on him. And so God, we, we, we want to do things our way. Each one of us has done it. We failed to live up even to our own standards, let alone God's. We rejected his way and chosen our own. But Jesus came. The bread from heaven. He came and though he knew no sin, he went to the cross and took your sin on himself as though it were his own. What you have earned in your rejection of God, the famine that you have earned for yourself, he took on himself at the cross that you might receive the gift of God, eternal life. The famine that you have earned, he has paid the price for. He has visited his people. The barley harvest has begun. All you need to do is accept that gift. To believe, to put your trust in, to have faith in what he did at the cross so that in the truest sense you will never hunger and thirst again. Your emptiness might be filled to our deepest level as humans. Our most fundamental need is relationship with God. It's to be made right with him. We read in Matthew chapter six, in the ser- Matthew chapter five, sorry, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied." Jesus will satisfy our desire for righteousness. In other words, to be made right with God, He will satisfy that desire by making us right with God Himself. But we can miss it, can't we? We could be like Orpah. Orpah just wanted to try and find fullness in other things. So I, I, I kind of want to be with you, Naomi, and, but actually I, I can't leave that behind. Don't make the same mistake. Whatever it is that you think, I can't leave that behind. It's not going to satisfy you in any lasting way. And Naomi wanted the blessings of God without actually wanting God. And actually wanting him to bless you isn't the same as believing in him. We can come to Jesus for all kinds of things. An easy and subtle shift to make. Come to him for health and finances, for, for the good life. It's worth Considering, examining ourselves, do we spend, what do we spend more time on? 
delighting in Jesus for who he is or asking him to do things for us. It's easy to end up in the kind of relationship where we treat God like some kind of magic genie. We come and ask for these things that we want, ask him to meet our appetites. But those things don't ultimately last. Jesus said that, and he said they ate manna and still died. (laughs) God provided it, and God provides for us in many ways. Dave prayed about some of that earlier. We're grateful for the many ways in which God provides for us. He gives to us graciously in many, many ways. But those things are not the primary things. And even if they don't come, Jesus is still enough. He's still enough in himself. He is the bread of life. Ruth got this. God plus nothing equals everything. That's what Ruth had understood. Orpah couldn't accept and Naomi had forgotten. How about you? If you're trying to find fullness of life in anything other than God, you will never feel satisfied in a way that endures because only he is eternally, unchangingly faithful and true. As Naomi discovered, everything and everyone else will at some point fail, change, deteriorate, or die. But not him. Not him. So we're going to conclude our time together this afternoon by taking communion. We're going to come back to worship and we're going to share the bread and wine. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper because he wanted us to remember this Truth. He wanted us to remember that we're made righteous through him and that we are satisfied truly in him alone. The bread of life. That as we eat and drink of him, we know life. The Lord has visited his people. Just as Naomi heard from the fields of Moab. I want you to hear today. God has visited his people. The house of bread. (laughs) Bethlehem. The bread of life has come. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to come back to worship.